0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Good evening. Welcome to MoFAD Lab. So exciting to have you guys all here. My name is Peter Kim. I am the executive director of the Museum of Food and Drink. I see a lot of familiar faces, which is exciting. But for those of you who are new here, a uh, bit of background on the museum. We're a nonprofit. We are a new kind of museum that brings the world of food to life with exhibits that you can eat. We inspire curiosity about food, what it means, and how it connects with the world around us. And our goal is to open the world's first large-scale independent food museum. And it blows my mind to say this, but it's true. There is no museum like this anywhere else in the world. And we think it's really important that this happens now uh, here in New York City. To give you a sense of what we envision, we want to build a place where you can actually taste and smell your way around the world and through time, learn about the science of bread, but also discover the economics of coffee or debate the ethics of meat production, or discover the fascinating neuroscience of flavor and the mysteries of the guts, taste ancient Roman food, Han Dynasty food, or space station food. And the possibilities are endless, but all very exciting. You're here now in MoFAD Lab, which is Uh, sort of our our test kitchen where we are developing both our exhibits and our community as we grow. We're open Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and I'd encourage you all to please come back and visit. We have an excellent exhibition up right now. It's called Chow: Making the Chinese American Restaurant, and it tells the incredibly poignant story of how Chinese immigrants overcame white supremacy and racism to create one of the country's most beloved cuisines. So, we have a very exciting program this evening, and I am very excited to have um, our first guest, Michael Harlan Turkell, who is an award winning photographer. He is also an author and a radio show host, and he's worked with some of the most incredible chefs around the world. He's deeply knowledgeable about food. He actually just uh, published a book, Acid Trip, right? Um, about vinegar. Uh, <laughs> And so it's just great to have you here, Michael. And our other guest is Nathan Mirvold. Now, Nathan, as many of you may well know, is somebody who often defies description. I'll try to do it in 25 words or less. I defy that. <laughs> There you go. Uh, let's see. Polymath, former Microsoft CTO, uh, world barbecue champion, T-Rex archaeologist, volcano explorer, malaria fighter, and one of the most influential people in food today. I think that falls under 25. Um, and you know, quite frankly, uh, Nathan and his work with modernist cuisine was an inspiration for Dave Arnold, me, and my colleagues when we were first getting MoFat off the ground. We were in particular inspired by Nathan's insatiable curiosity for you know, learning about the world of food, and his unswerving commitment to doing deep dives, getting the information right, and uh, really getting people to think about food in an entirely different way. These are values that we hold dear to ourselves here at the museum, and so it's just a tremendous honor to have Nathan here with us. Now, this evening, Michael and Nathan will be kicking off their new podcast, Modernist Breadcrumbs, on Heritage Radio Network. And uh, Modernist Breadcrumbs is itself based in part on Nathan's uh, forthcoming book, Modernist Bread, which is, I don't know how better to put it, but sort of a 2,642-page um, magnum opus homage to bread. It is the result of over four years of research and experimentation, and it is going to also be available for pre-sale after the program. Uh, I would be remiss if I didn't thank our partners before we proceed, Uh, So I would like to extend our gratitude to Heritage Radio Network, the 92Y, and also, of course, Modernist Cuisine for working with us on this evening's program. Before we kick things off, um, we're going to go and do a trailer. We're going to watch a trailer for Modernist Breadcrumbs, so I guess we can go ahead and cue that right now.
2: There's no smell in the world of food equal to the perfume of baking bread, and few greater pleasures in eating than sitting down with a slice of freshly baked bread, good butter, and a cup of tea or coffee. This October, Modernist Cuisine founder Nathan Mirvold and head chef Francisco Magoya will join me, Michael Harlan Turkel of The Food Scene, for Modernist Breadcrumbs, a special collaborative podcast series that takes a fresh look at one of the oldest staples of the human diet, bread. Although it may seem simple, bread is more complex than you think. I don't remember the first time I ate bread.
3: I think very few people do, (laughs) because I must have been very little indeed. I remember the first time that I saw bread being baked. I'd asked about it, and my grandmother made a loaf of bread. And I was
2: fascinated with the whole thing. From the microbes that power fermentation to the economics of growing grain, there's a story behind every loaf. Each episode will reveal those stories and more, beginning with bread's surprising and often complicated paths from the perspective of people who are passionate about bread and shaping its future.
0: We did 1,500 experiments.
2: 1,500 experiments. That's, in the context of three years, working on a project, 1,500 experiments, that's 500 experiments a year.
3: Well, I'm not sure there is such a thing as the perfect bread. Um, And of course... There is always a very strong subjective aspect to any kind of cooking.
1: The five-volume, 2,642-page book, Modernist Bread, will take us into the ever-expanding world of bread, the culmination of over four years of nonstop research, photography, experiments, writing, and baking. Modernist Breadcrumbs is a podcast sharing the voices, stories, and insights of top bread bakers and experts from around the world. Hundreds of hours of interviews were captured by the Modernist Breadcrumbs team, led by Michael Harlan Turkell, a passionate cook, baker, and author himself. Whether you love making bread or simply eating it, this show is sure to feed your curiosity and hunger for a truly great loaf.
2: You can throw a recipe together, or you can be meticulous, and chances are both approaches are likely to produce a good bread. It is a mysterious business, this making of bread and Once you're hooked by the miracle of yeast, you'll be a bread maker for life.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in giving a warm round of applause to Michael Harlan Turkell and Nathan Mirvold.
2: How's it going, everybody? So I don't really have to reintroduce... The problem with
3: us as a team is we've
2: proven that we can drone on for hundreds of hours. So 250 at that. (laughs) Uh, Not just all Nathan, but we interviewed about 40 to 50 bakers, millers, farmers around the world. um, And it almost wasn't enough. Uh, We are launching this podcast, Modernist Breadcrumbs. Actually, we launched it about two hours ago, three hours ago. So go on to heritageradionetwork.org and check it out. Um, but we recorded so many hours of interviews, and everyone had the same thing to say. They love bread. And I'm assuming that's why you're here too, right? Are there any people that are gluten-free that are in the crowd? Or don't like So no, We actually Don't won. shame yeah. them. It's...
3: <laughs> it's a- it's punishment enough.
2: Yeah, <laughs> but modernist bread itself, this two thousand six hundred forty-two page tome, um, <laughs> is solely about yeast leavened breads. And before we even get to that, um, I, I have a personal Microbial question. 11. Microbial leaven. Um, Microbial. I have a personal question for you. Okay. If you were a bread, what bread would you be? <laughs>
3: Yes, uh, well, after tonight,
2: they'll think I'm a little stale. <laughs> <laughs> oh, get ready for the bread puns, everybody.
3: Yes, and, uh, yes, and I, I suspect by fat content, I would be a brioche. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well done, well done. Um, so let, let's talk about the difference machine, the Tesla coil, curing malaria, bring better milk to the world. You do all this underneath the auspice of what you do out in Seattle, out in Bellevue, Washington. Then there's the cooking lab, this small little corner of your office, where bread is very, very analog.
3: Bigger than this room, but yes. (laughs) Relative to everything else you
2: have. But why do you care about bread, something so analog?
3: Well, first of all, I care about food. And I've cared about food longer than I've cared about technology because I was a little baby and little babies like to eat, but not so much on technology. Also, back in my day, we didn't have none of that fancy technology. Um, so, uh, so anyway, I've always been into food. Uh, you know, food is both fuel for us. It, it's necessary to run our bodies. But food is also uh, an enormous expression of artistic creativity in the hands of a, a great chef. Uh, it's an emotional experience for the person eating it. Uh, I think all, much of what is great about
2: people happens in microcosms around food. What's so great about yeast? Because we, as people, have it inside us, and it makes bread what it is.
3: Well, OK, so the, the great, well, there's two great things about yeast, OK? Uh, one great thing about yeast is it pisses out alcohol. And, We're talking you know, about need I humans? say more? Well, no, but it's amazing that the same stuff also, besides pissing out alcohol, it farts out carbon dioxide, and that's what makes our bread rise, and it's really quite remarkable that the same microorganism we've harnessed in these two fundamentally different ways. In fact, uh, we tried to find a good way of determining when bread is fully proofed, and that, that's not easy. Uh, and my favorite idea, which turned out not to work for a bunch of reasons, is we used a breathalyzer. <laughs> because, hey, it's, it's ex- ex- exhaling alcohol, so you ought to be able to detect it. You certainly can. Unfortunately, you can't really tell when the bread is proofed. You can tell when you're making the maximum alcohol, which is not quite the same thing.
2: You know, what I love is that this is something that didn't work. Uh, uh, the proof test, trying to create some kind of scientific method for it, the best way was... Pushing some dough and seeing how it bounces back. Yeah, it, it's the um, the puffy
3: jacket test. Um, wh- wh- when you poke your your bread, you want it to come back, but not right away, right? If if, if it's more like punching your thigh, no, 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 no. Then it needs more time. Uh, although I gotta also say it is uh, it depends a lot on each lo- each recipe for bread has sort of different characteristics, and that's one of the reasons we couldn't do a one size fits all. Machine is that it really is dependent on a sort of per recipe basis.
2: So, what else didn't work? I mean, I know know you wrote. You heard us (laughs)
3: bragging about
2: how many experiments we did. We didn't say how many successful ones, did we? But that's the amazing thing about something so analog that for thousands upon thousands of years it's been the same. Um, So, what are the innovations that you're looking for? Was there a specific spectrum or? Where there are a couple key things.
3: I, I, one of the reasons I wanted to do something on bread was that, um, you know, through bread is such a basic food for us that our society went on a mission to make bread really cheap. And that included make, doing these huge uh, commodity scale agriculture, it also included making machine made breads. Well, in the 1970s, both in France and in the United States, There was sort of a reaction to this, and that's how the artisanal bread movement started. And these people said, hey, this crap in the supermarket might be cheap, but it isn't any good. Let's actually make good bread. And their model was to look to the past. And it was a great idea then. The trouble is there's a limit to how much you can look at the past. So... For the last 30 years, the artisanal bread movement is about doing things ever more primitively. Oh, you know, we use it by hand, we don't use mixers, oh, we grind our own flour, oh, We uh, uh, we use a wood-fired uh, oven. And, and my sort of rhetorical question is, okay, stone tools, is that where we go next? Will that really make it better? Because uh, at a certain point, being more primitive isn't a great thing. Also, part and parcel of that is that the world expects that all, all the best breads were in the past. Well, it's cer- certainly not true for food in restaurants. If we went to a bunch of great restaurants in New York, we would find dishes you can only find there. They're inventions, they're brand new things that that chef has done, which is terrific. If we, we could go to a bunch of fantastic bakeries in Brooklyn and Manhattan and Paris and London and Tokyo, and Seattle, and we would find pretty much the same breads. Because, oh, you don't have a batard, oh, you don't have a baguette, oh, you don't have a pen de campagna? And uh, if you stop innovation because you, you create this myth that can only occur in the past, you really have a problem. But you
2: did look to the past, and I, I love the oh, New York Times Oh, of course we did. Yeah, I love the New York Times article that came out today and talked about you walking around the Louvre with a, a camera <laughs> strapped around you taking pictures yeah. of bread in, in art. So I, I, I kept
3: looking for a way to find pictures, uh, paintings of the past that were cataloged by whether they had bread in them. And uh, you know, Google has this AI um, uh, system that can determine if your YouTube video is a cat video, but they don't have one that can spot bread in pictures. It's, um, and it was uh, this is important because I wanted to see what bread looked like in the past. You know, we always all have a sense that bread was always the way we experienced it. Uh, it I knew that wasn't true. Um, the first baguette was very likely baked in 1918. Uh, ciabatta bread, ciabatta bread was invented in the 1980s and trademarked by a baker in Milan. Okay, when it came to America, everyone thought, "Oh, wow! This rustic peasant bread—you know—that <laughs> must be from that part of Italy I didn't quite get to in my last trip, because I don't remember seeing it." But, but clearly, uh, but no, totally
2: sats. Well, how how bad was old bread? Uh, I know in the first part when we we were talking about history, um, Pompeii or trenchers or these terms of things that. Were flat plates and used to sop up juices. They weren't really breads. They were almost like vehicles well, for something else. The uh, uh, well, there's a lot of wonderful vehic- i call them vehicular foods.
3: Um, you know, the the purpose of popcorn really is to carry the the butter and salt to your mouth. <laughs> um, it's you know, when a chef says it accepts flavoring well, that means it usually doesn't have very much of its own. Um, So we really got into the past. We got into the Roman bread very seriously because uh, the Romans produced bread uh, at enormous scale. Uh, Bread was a primary source of calories. And as a result, they had to make lots of it. So Pompeii, which is actually not a very large town, had 33 bakeries. Uh, Well, we read a bunch of things about how the Romans made their bread. And unfortunately, those things were written by archaeologists or classicists who don't know how any bread is made, much less the Roman bread. So none of their actual speculations would work. Uh, And we have a tendency to get carried away. Uh, So uh, I discovered that Romans had a law that you had to mark your bread with a little bronze thing called a bread stamp. This thing, right here. And... I thought that was so cool. Then I found an antiquities dealer that had one. So I bought it, and for the first time in 2,000 years, it went into an oven. Uh, of course, the dealer was horrified. You know, He said it, would, it would, wouldn't be guaranteed. I said, look, the one thing I know is this thing likes ovens. <laughs> uh, there's a fabulous um, mural in Pompeii of a man distributing bread, looks like a man selling bread uh, to customers. And so we really got interested in that mural because if you look really closely, you can tell a lot of details of the bread. Uh, And then we got carried away enough that we built a set, we built, we made costumes, and we did a casting call of people who worked at the lab so we could recreate the picture.
2: I'm just glad you didn't recreate a volcano. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, that, that leads me to think, is bread art or is it science? Because it feels like a lot of the references you've had so far are, are from art, but where's the empirical data? So, of course, bread is an artificial food. Uh,
3: it, artificial in the sense, it was made by people. Uh, so there's lots of wonderful foods. An oyster is not an artificial food. You pry it open and you eat it, and it's the way the oysters have, have evolved for uh, their own reasons, but bread is a total transformation of the grain into something else. And it was a very important uh, invention because uh, whole civilizations were based on um, grain. So if you're going to eat grain as your main thing, you got two choices, porridge or bread. What would you do? Um, (coughs) it It was really a very important thing, but it's the thing I love about it is that people learned how to harness yeast and fermentation before they knew there was such a thing as microorganisms. Uh, they learned all kinds of stuff that uh, actually wasn't, either wasn't known when we started our book and we figured it out or still isn't known after we finished because we couldn't figure it out. Uh, the ability of people to learn from experience and harness something they don't fully understand is awesome. And that's why we got bread, actually, and wine and cheese. Um, when Modernist Cuisine came out, I remember I was talking to someone who was sort of not a fan of the whole idea of Modernist. And he said, well, why can't you write about really simple food? You know, like, like wine and cheese and bread. <laughs> and, of course, I laughed at them. And at first they thought I was just being rude. And then I said, look, those, those are not simple. Those are the most complicated things in the world. And if you don't believe me, try to make them. (laughs) And of those, by the way, bread is the most forgiving. Uh, Bread is... uh, People shouldn't be afraid of making bread um, because it really is forgiving, much more so than cheese.
2: (laughs) So I've I've now spent a lot of time with your head chef, Francisco Magoya. Shout out to him if he's listening. And uh, what's, what's great is that he was not a bread baker. Yes, he dabbled in viennoiserie, but he was a pastry chef. Yes. And I wonder why you hired a pastry chef to write a bread book. Um,
3: Well, if you saw that set of pictures, there was a picture of a brioche that was covered in carefully piped out meringue and the whole thing had been torched. And that is part of what you get when you hire a pastry chef. Um, So what I wanted to do is hire someone who... Uh, had experience writing complicated cookbooks, and Francisco had written several prior to this, Uh, somebody who had worked in one of the top restaurants in the world. Because I I am interested in a dedication to the quality of what you do and a quality of the experience that uh, is pretty extreme. Uh, So I wanted someone who had worked for, Uh, someone who had done a fantastic restaurant because the level of attention to detail, the focus on quality, I thought was very, very high there and frankly doesn't have to be as high at most bakeries because most bakeries are selling a $5 product. Um, And nothing against the world of bakers and bakery, but there's only so much attention you can do to that. So uh, Francisco had been the head pastry chef at French Laundry, and there you're spending $250 a person plus the wine, and if anything, the bread or anything isn't right, the people, you'll hear about it. And as a result, uh, those places are run uh, with an attention to detail that I do not think I could find any other place. Now, unfortunately, very few, uh, very top restaurants have a bread person. Um, in fact, Thomas Keller's bread person is at Bouchon Bakery. It isn't part of French Laundry, and nothing against that. Um, so, but Francisco met all of those criteria, and so, um, and then of course, the, my big question is: Would he, uh, w- would he be willing to come and? Turns out he was. <laughs>
2: um, how many bakers are in the crowd? How many bread bakers are here? Raise your hand. Okay, okay we have a handful. Uh, on, on Nathan's point alone, trying to teach a staff how to bake bread, you know that there's a lot of latitude. You come in one day, and you see a bread one way, and you see it another. Um, how do you train somebody, or how do you teach somebody to keep within those bounds? Well, of course, we have the luxury that uh, we...
3: Uh, we weren't a bakery, so we weren't trying to please a single fixed customer. Now, that said, we were sort of the bakery without revenue. Um, uh, we baked 60,000 loaves of bread for this book. Um, we went through... <laughs> I, I would ask Francisco, okay, what? Well, how much flour are we going through? And when it got to be a pallet of flour every three weeks, I said, boy, <laughs> that's really a lot. Um, uh, so... Uh, everybody at our lab gained weight. <laughs> and nobody in our lab has bought bread in three years. And it's very traumatic to them now because we've stopped baking bread, at least at, at
2: that scale. Um, so uh, there. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you could have just used that volcano and put it in the ashes and preserved whatever <laughs> you didn't eat at that time. But uh, th- there, there are so many things that I want to ask you, um, you know, about no need, about, you know, do CPR, what, what are the biggest innovations that have come out of bread in the past 10, 15, 20 years and continue to come out because of your book?
3: Well, so one of the things that is a modern innovation that dates uh, around that time is high-hydration breads. Um, Chad Robertson's bread, uh, for example, uh, Chad was kind enough to write the forward for the book, that's a modern invention, and to me that's a modern-style bread. Now, it looks really rustic and old, if it's got lots of big bubbles in it, but it turns out uh, no bread in the past did that. Um, And we know, because we have both gotten lots of bread recipes from the past, uh, but we also found this uh, great uh, French scientist named Riveau, who in the 1840s went around buying loaves of bread all over Paris, measuring them, weighing them, and determining their moisture content. And one of the funniest things about Riveau's um, study is that the smallest loaf of bread he worked on was two kilos. And when you think about it a minute, it's very clear why. It, most of the people in Paris were relying on bread for most of their calories. And if you're going to live on bread, you need about a pound a day. It's half a kilo. So you don't bring home a nice little 200 to 300 gram baguette uh uh-uh. uh, <laughs> that's like a snack. And you also don't take the time to make that because you you're at, you're putting a lot more labor per weight of dough. So they made big all round loaves, and it's really hard dealing with a high hydration bread. We eventually invented a, re- a way to make it much easier to do a high hydration bread, like super easy. But it. It's super hard because when you have this, uh, high hydration means a lot of water and uh, approaching equal weights of flour and water, that's called 100% and that's, um, that's really high. <laughs> uh, and when the dough gets like that, it's this funny substance, it's like the movie The Blob. You know, it's, it's not a batter and it's not a dough, it kind of quivers, you, you, you touch it and it's stuck to you and you're, it's like the Flubber movie. Um, so it's actually really hard for Chad to train people to do that. In fact, you brought training. If you're a professional baker, you're always in training mode because you have a large number of people who come and work for a while and then they move on to do something else. Um,
2: Usually something else that is easier because it's hard work. So Francisco kept on calling bread just foam. And and now you've told me that bread because of yeast is just piss and farts um
3: what it's is, enriched by piss yeah. and farts but okay you have to piss by. and fart into
2: <laughs> a bunch of dough for that to, to work out do, do you find poetry in bread or do you find it completely scientific now I, I know the method behind how you did your high hydration doughs but do these things blow your mind when they actually work oh sure <laughs> look there's a lot of ideas that don't work
3: um there's things that do work that are super surprising uh, to us. Um, uh, one that Francisco came up with is he wondered if you could can bread. It sounds really weird, but it turns out, take a canning jar, put some dough in it, put the lid on loose just like you would if you were canning it, and bake it. As it cools down, the thing will suck down, and you have canned bread. And it's actually awesome for some things. Uh, Of course, because uh, Francisco has this um, pastry proclivity, the thing we've put the most use of it for at the lab is uh, baba o rum. (laughs) Because you can make these awesome little babas down in the the bottom of the thing, and then you can serve it in it. Anyway.
2: Yeah, And they're lining the shelves right now, and I think you had a six-month-old one, an eight-month-old, because it's hermetically sealed. We we don't, uh, so far, none have gone stale, um
3: but we only can know out about 8 months because that's when we came up with it was about 8 months ago
2: <laughs> but it's so cool that you're still exploring and still oh, finding oh sure out no in fact
3: uh, at the very towards the very end of um the book i was talking uh, to somebody know and she is a celiac and that's a very serious condition uh, we have a big chapter in the book on gluten-free breads but my friend said, look i i would kill for a gluten-free muffin or not muffin a uh, gluten-free Bagel. I said, well, good luck with that. You're never going to gluten-free bagel. And I sort of pompously explained why that's true. Um, well, I proceeded to go on a trip, business trip. And I had this idea. And I emailed back to Francisco. And the damn thing worked. So that was the last recipe that made it in the book. Um, uh, Stephanie, who's over there, who's our publisher, um, it, she works for me, but she's still our publisher, Uh, She didn't want me to put the gluten-free bagel in because it would have caused a change past the deadline. Uh, Fortunately, I have a certain amount of influence with uh, Stephanie, so we did get it in just, just. But not only does it make
2: a gluten-free bagel, it's like really good. Oh, I've tasted it, and it's it's genius, and even more so the slurry method to attach all the seeds. Because nothing's worse than putting that many expensive seeds on a bagel and finding them at the bottom of your bag. Yeah. So you've made a gluten-free bagel and all the seeds stick. Yes, both. Uh, well done.
3: Um, also, uh, bagels and bow were absolutely critical to us figuring out uh, why uh, or how baguettes get to be crispy. You're not going to tell us why. <laughs> sure yeah. I will. Um, so it's been known since about the 1840s that if you inject steam into an oven right at the beginning of a bake, you can make a very crispy crust. Well, I, I first learned this when I was a kid, and I got Julia Child's Mastering the Art of French Cooking, and it had this very long recipe for a baguette, which I made at like 12. Um, and the part that didn't work very well was her instructions about steam, where you had to put, like, cookie sheets at the bottom of the oven and then spray water on them. And, Eh, that part did not work so well. And it really freaked me out, though, as a kid, because you think, well, shouldn't steam make it soggy? What, what is up with that? Well, fast forward to now. So when we started the book, one of the things it is like, oh, I'll look up all these things that I always wondered, and I'll see what, what the real answer is, because surely, surely someone has figured this out. Nope. Um, there were several different theories Uh, about this crispiness. Uh, They, of course, contradicted each other, and they were all, like, trivial to show false. Um, And and it it turns out that the bagel is one of the great counterexamples. Bagels are also steamed. Bagels are not crispy. Bagels are chewy. Another big thing for me was bao, actually, because bao... Like bagels is steamed. Now, they're only steamed. There's no other bag. So, of course, you wouldn't expect it to be crispy. Um, but while playing with my food in a dim sum restaurant, I discovered you can actually peel a bow. The whole thing. Just bring, take the whole skin off in one piece. And I was playing with the... And it turns out that's another hint. Um, uh, another aspect that's shared by bows and bagels and baguettes is they're shiny. The shininess occurs because a film of water covers it when you steam it, and the starch gelatinizes. And it makes it shiny. It doesn't make it crispy by itself. But uh, once we then we later figured out how bread bakes, which is another mystery. Um, if you have a, a rib roast this big, it takes hours to cook. If you have a loaf of bread this big, it bakes in 20 minutes. Why? How can that possibly be true? Well, it turns out the answer to that and bagels and bao brought, you know, answered the baguette question for us.
2: So the next time you're in Chinatown and see someone peeling the ice out of their bao, uh, you might be a genius. So
3: <laughs> don't gawk.
2: Uh, but this leads me to ovens. I mean, we're yeah. talking about steam injection, and you know that was invented by August... Uh, Zeng in, in Austria in the 1800s. But what's wrong with ovens today? Because it's so hard to make a good loaf at home.
3: Well, uh, home ovens um, just aren't very good. At, they're, they're sort of a compromise all the way around. Um, it, they, a typical home oven has natural convection. That means you've got the heat at the bottom, and you rely on the air currents to to move things through it. They're usually not very even in their heat. They're usually not calibrated very well. Um, And you don't get a lot of radiant heat. And these are all things that the, the antithesis of this is a baker's deck oven. You get to set the temperature of the floor, the temperature of the ceiling, and you can inject steam whenever you want. And, boy, that gives you a tremendous amount of control that you don't have in your home oven. Um, so we did a whole bunch of experiments to figure out what's the best way to bake different breads in your home oven. And if it's a sandwich bread, it'll work okay. You have to, you know, we always recommend you buy a cheap oven thermometer and kind of understand what the hell temperature it is, because you can easily be off by 50 or 75 degrees, and that makes a big difference. Um, it turns out the best way to, to get the crusty bread effect is not the spritzing the coffee, the um, cookie tins, Uh, it's to bake in cheap black cast iron. Uh, It turns out the Fancy Pants, Le Creuset, enameled stuff is terrible. Um, (laughs) It's The blackness of the cast iron is really important. It's not the fact just that it's it's cast iron. Uh, The other thing is the recipes that tell you that you have to preheat the pot, it's well-meaning And you can get a slight improvement by preheating the pot, but you have a 450-degree pot. You're supposed to lower your your boule down into it. I mean, you either burn your fingers or you dump your bread in sideways. So it turns out you can put the pot upside down, and uh, you don't even need to preheat it, to be honest. But if you wanted to preheat it, you can just preheat the top.
2: So are are there other hacks? Are there other things we can do to our ovens?
3: Uh, well, to ovens, that's maybe the, the, the best hack that I have. Um, it, uh, we, for flatbreads, we love using a pizza steel, not a pizza stone. Um, it, in a real pizza oven, you have a stone or ceramic floor, which gets super hot, and you put pizzas on it. So then people thought, oh, well, to replicate this in your home oven, let's put a, thi- uh, a, a pizza stone in there. The trouble is the pizza stone that they put in is thin, and it gets hot. But because it's stone uh, or ceramic of some sort, it gives up its heat um, slowly. That's okay if you've got if it's like this thick and it's massively hot. It's not okay if you've got your little home oven doing it. So a piece of steel, um, the thicker the better. Um, Quarter inch works. Three eighths is better. I really like a half inch, but a half inch gets really heavy, um, and uh, just mild steel works great. Uh, There's pizza of steel you can buy, but this is a, just a chunk of steel. Is the main thing. It, it winds up getting not only does it have a lot of heat in it, but because metal conducts heat relatively well, it gives it up fast. And by giving it up fast, that's what lets you get the a little bit of uh, blistering on the bottom of your pizza. Um, now, a cast iron pan will work, and that's, that's certainly another alternative. But
2: I, I want to know what your home kitchen is like, because I've been to the cooking lab, and you have tandoors and deck ovens and wood fire, but w- what kind of bread do you actually bake at home?
3: Well, long before I made, of course, I built my kitchen long before I did any of these books, so I have two deck ovens, a proofer retarder, and two rational combi ovens. I don't. Yeah, you're looking for me to answer. Well, no. okay, look, you asked. Yeah. You asked. I mean, I did take the centrifuge from home to the lab when we started working on the well, yeah, me too.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I mean I took your centrifuge. <laughs> so. But if if I don't have the space in my Brooklyn apartment for, you know, a, a proofer and two deck ovens, uh, what should I invest in other than uh, I mean, how do I proof of bread at home? How do I create, like, a so dough cycle? one of the things that is a big source, in general,
3: uh, variability is your enemy when you're trying to make uh, bread reliably. And so anything that varies a lot, you shouldn't do. Um, and, that and the problem with home bakers is they'll say, oh, God, I screwed it up. It didn't come out. It's like, no, actually, don't blame yourself. You, you left it out to proof on the kitchen, and you don't have air conditioning, and it's a very different temperature at different parts of the year, so that's why it's not going to come out. It's not, don't take it personally. Um, you know, so people proof out on their counter. Uh, proof in your broom closet um, or your bedroom closet. It, it usually doesn't have windows, and people aren't opening the door a lot, um, if you want, we should have instructions for doing a do-it-yourself proofer in the book. You take a cooler, and you go to a, a pet store, and you buy an aquarium heater. Because <laughs> aquarium heaters are made to heat in exactly this uh, this range. And so you put like an inch of water at the bottom of your cooler, and you put in the aquarium heater... And then if you want to be fancy, you can put in like a cake cooling rack or something to keep the pans off of the, out of the water, although it doesn't really matter. And that works great. Um, so little things like that to make sure that things are, are the same every time uh, really helps. Uh, the other thing I, I always have to say, even though this is not primarily um, home cooks here, the biggest lesson that anyone should tell home cooks is do it more than once. Okay, the classic thing is someone asks me, oh, you know, um, I, what's a good recipe for, for X? And I'll say, okay, when are you going to use this? Oh, well, you know, my mother-in-law is coming over and and my boss, and it's this huge thing. And I said, you're going to make it before, right? Do I have to? And, of course, you've screwed yourself up if you... Um, if, in fact, you say, the first time I'm going to make a recipe is in that context. Um, and, but and again, people blame themselves. Uh, after a talk, I had this one uh, woman come up to me and said how she was a terrible cook and she, she wanted to know how she could improve. And uh, I said, well, how many times do you make the recipes? She also said it wasn't as good as she got at the local restaurant. I said, now... Do you think the folks at the restaurant are making that for the first time? (laughs) I was like, oh. Uh, And with bread, look, flour is really cheap, okay? And uh, even a bad loaf of bread is not the worst thing you've ever had in your kitchen. So uh, there's nothing uh, to beat experience. Try it a few times. You'll get a rhythm going. Uh, if we, if that was the only lesson I got across, it, it would. I don't. I think people might feel cheated, but it would be worth the price of admission.
2: <laughs> I've also heard home bakers blame the grain, um, flour. Uh, we really haven't touched on flour. We've been talking about baking better breads, but what does what access to better flour mean? What does what knowing a miller or having a farmer nearby that grows a specific type of wheat mean to bread baking? Well, I, I, I guess.
3: Uh, One of the things we devote almost a whole volume to is the whole grain agriculture system. Um, For 99% of the time, having a farmer nearby who grows grain doesn't help you because he's growing the same grain everybody else in the country is. And by the way, you can't do very much with it if you did get some from him. Um, It's unfortunate, but it's true. In every food item that we care about In order to get quality, we have to link the people who do the original agriculture or, in the case of fishing, the fishermen or whatever, the original producer of the raw food to the people who actually are preparing it to the consumer. Uh, When I was a kid, my mom bought Folgers coffee. Thank God that is not the only choice now. There's a bajillion choices, single origin, X, Y, and Z, only from the north side of the hill, ba-dum, ba ba uh, When I was a kid, chocolate was only Hershey's. The same thing happened. And so people who care enough about it will go source those best uh, things. Well, our, our society went on this giant uh, quest to make bread almost free. That was the goal. And they did succeed in making grain almost free. So in a typical supermarket loaf of bread, the farmer gets five cents. Um, and that's kind of absurd. Um, the US Department of Agriculture did this study that we looked at in this, and they broke out insurance as one of the categories. The insurance guy gets eight cents, okay? The plastic bag, that's, a, that's five cents. So, That's, like, totally fucked up, okay? The actual product that it's all based on is nearly free. Like, hey, what if we were, like, totally crazy and we spent 25 cents? Whoa! Now, at the moment, if you're the baker or the, excuse me, the farmer who's trying to make that better grain, it's really hard because you don't know who the hell to sell it to. Um, And so there's, there's this whole chain um bread is at a stage that uh you know coffee and chocolate were decades ago and it's going to be tough sledding because we have a lot of attitudes about bread uh that are kind of built into many of us that come from this notion that it needs to be cheap or free Um, when a restaurant charges for bread people get mad and i was talking to someone about this and i said well do you think risotto ought to be free or pasta? And they said, "Well, you know, that's, that's, that's like a dish that the chef makes. I say, well, yeah, so? Um, now, I understand that if you're used to bread being free, then you think that's part of the society's pact. But if it's something that the chef has to provide for free, they're going to put a commensurate amount of effort into it. Um, and if we're not willing to go a little out of our way to seek out a great baker, maybe stand in line a little longer than we would at the supermarket and maybe pay a little more, if we're not willing to do that, we're getting the bread we insist on. Now, to go back to your question of the great flour, so you can get great flour at most uh, places if you look for it. Um, I mean, if you're a beginning baker, start off by trying to get bread flour. Um, bread flour is not necessarily better than uh, all-purpose, but all-purpose flour is all over the map in terms of what it actually has in it, what protein level is in it. So unless you get used to a particular brand, you're better off with bread flour. Um, it, the, uh, There are small mills that do a great job, uh, the, but like the small mills that... that we've got one in Washington state that supplied a lot of flour for us, but you won't get it here because again, flour is so cheap that the transportation of it um, is just becomes an issue.
2: So flour is pretty much just shipping and handling. Well,
3: <laughs> it, yes. It, it, when you put it in boats, it turns out water is really slippery. So you can move flour by boat, huge distances um, uh, because a uh, pizza is a, Flatbread. Uh, we sort of used this as an excuse to uh, send Francisco to VPN school for the to get like officially certified. Um, he also got certified as a Detroit-style pizza maker. But the funniest part of the VPN course was where the uh, Italian guy was waxing lyrical. He says, "You know what makes the flour so great? The wheat of Manitoba." Because <laughs> It's true. <laughs> Italy is not a great country for growing wheat. <laughs> Canada is. And, and great, the, all uh, the, the fancy double zero flowers from Italy all come from wheat grown in Canada.
2: So, God forbid that we're not bread bakers in this room, but we are bread buyers. How do we invest in better bread? Do we diversify which loaves we buy? Do we frequent certain bakeries? Well, look, New York City... Uh,
3: has some of the best bakers in the world in it. And it's got a lot of crap bread, too. Okay, I mean, certainly the supermarket is full of crap bread. But there's also, you know, full-on bakeries, bread bakeries, that have stuff that I don't think is very good. Um, I, I'm not going to sort of name and shame. That isn't my, my role here. Um, but, uh, look, I also don't like telling people what they should eat. Uh, we have a chapter on bread and health where we talk about the gluten-free phenomenon. And there are some people who have celiac disease. That's a serious thing. You need to treat it seriously, and those people shouldn't eat gluten. Now, there's a ton of other people that have self-diagnosed that they have some problem with gluten. And if they want to do that, I'm not going to tell them, no, you ought to not eat it. The trouble is when people get some new thing like that in their lives, they tend to want to proselytize it. And the best way to proselytize it is to say it's for health. Um, if you're proselytizing a religion, you say, you're going to go to hell if you don't do this. If you're proselytizing a food, you say, oh my God, I can't believe you do that to yourself or to your children. Uh, and, you know, the trouble is there just isn't a lot of evidence that... that um, in like fact, there's no evidence uh, that there are people who are gluten-sensitive other than people who are celiacs. And what I mean by no evidence is scientists have done these studies, where so they get a bunch of people who say they're very sensitive to gluten. They randomly divide them into two groups. One group gets gluten-free food. I do some other tests. The other group gets gluten-free food that they spiked pure gluten into. And they can't tell. And they've never found a group of people that could tell. Now, it, 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 rarely you might find someone who has an undiagnosed case of celiac, of course. But um, uh, So I don't think I should tell people what to eat, but I don't like it when people shame whole g- areas of food on the basis of health stuff that isn't true. Now, d- just to be make sure everyone hates me, um, it, it, there's uh, on the other side, uh, whole grains are not better for you. The usual claim is whole wheat or whole grain breads are better for you um, health-wise, and they're more nutritious. And, and that leads to otherwise well-meaning people attacking bakers or, or deriding white flour. And I think that's ridiculous because, again, there's no evidence. It's not more nutritious. Uh, ironically, uh, whole grain breads are net-net less nutritious. Um, That's because the bran uh, has a set of chemicals called phytates in them. And those bind to other minerals and prevent your body from absorbing them. So whole grain bread basically blocks iron uh, absorption. So if you're anemic, whole grain bread is blocking any iron you're eating at the same time you're eating your whole grain bread. Uh, there's other minerals that people say, oh, that mineral is in the bran. Well, it's in the part of the bran you don't digest. So you flush that away afterwards, and that didn't help you very much. Um, So I love whole grain breads. We have lots of whole grain uh, bread recipes. Uh, We even came up with a way of making a whole grain bread that has almost the same volume as a uh, white flour. Well, which takes some doing. Uh, Normally, there's nothing in the world that kills the volume of bread as well as bran. Now, when I say nothing in the world, we tried lead shot, ball bearings, we tried ground glass, we tried everything we could to see what is something that would cause the volume of bread to go down. And boy, bran takes the cake. Um, and, And it's for two reasons. Uh, One is there is a mechanical aspect of it, that when your bread is rising, there's effectively a million little balloons in there that are getting inflated by the the yeast. And the bran particles are big, and they're sharp, and those actually weaken those bubbles. That's the mechanical effect, but that's actually slight. Ground glass, or like chopped up fiberglass, does do that. Um, If you try this at home, make sure you label the pans. (laughs) Just saying. Well, I mean, Um, I know
2: some breads in the past have been adulterated with sawdust, chalk, but like this is an extreme. Well, (laughs) uh, so uh, the other reason that
3: bran kills the volume of bread is that bran soaks up a lot of water. So you start off with a bread, oh, I think I'm going to make a 70% hydration bread. 70% is a pretty good hydration level to get a reasonably open crumb. And then like a third of the water gets sucked up by the bran. <laughs> you, you, you now are making a, something that's uh, you know, less than 50% hydration bread, and that has a dense crumb. The biggest flour thing that we discovered, which still just freaks me out, is that there's no good rye flour in the United States. And, and that sounds almost absurd, but <laughs> we had some bakers from Vienna come visit our lab, and they specialized in 100% rye breads, and they tried to make their bread. And these guys were so pissed off. They were cursing. They were supposed to stay for two days. They stayed for like a week. And they kept trying. And dumb me, I'm tasting. I said, you know, this actually tastes pretty good. <laughs> and they're like cursing and cursing. And they think it must be the flour, but they they couldn't put their finger on it. Well, to, we kept at it and kept at it and kept at it. Uh, I eventually went to Germany and I got 250 pounds of rye flour and brought it back into the United States. That's a fascinating discussion with customs. <laughs> no, really, this white powder is flour. <laughs> the uh, the customs guy says I have to call my supervisor, and he gets on the interface. You won't believe it. This guy says he's writing a bread book. <laughs> um, so. What we discovered is that it, two things. First of all, rye in the United States is grown for animal feed almost exclusively. And then some of it is diverted for us to eat. Now it's safe, it's not bad, but it's not a varieties of rye that are grown in Europe for making bread. Um, in the U.S., if you ask your miller for a spec sheet on the flour, they'll give you a spec sheet that has all these little tests. So we called up... Every meal we could in the United States asked for a spec sheet on their rye flour. None of them had any. My favorite response was this guy who said, well, it's rye. Why would we test it? <laughs> but the other thing is that the rye flour they use to make 100% rye breads in, uh, in Germany and Austria has the texture of cake flour. It is ultra fine. We couldn't believe that. The rye flour in the United States is usually meal. It's this chunky stuff. It, well, I talked to a whole bunch of cereal chemists. I talked to a bunch of food scientists. Nobody actually knew how rye works. Um, we also we couldn't find any book in English on this except I found a translated German technical report where these, these guys had figured out that the finer you grind the flour, the fluffier the bread. Dramatically. So, now, here's the part I don't understand about this. There are millions of Americans that have German ancestry at some point, including me. Um, There's lots of Americans who live in Germany and Austria. There's lots of Germans and Austrian citizens who live here. Why? Why wasn't this figured out
2: 50 years ago? Well, I feel like we're going to end it there on a question mark. Um, <laughs> yes, there, there's an amazing Michael story. has his back away slowly yeah. voice. Um. <laughs> there's an amazing story in the book, as well as on modernist breadcrumbs, about uh, someone in your office named Carla who gets hundreds of pounds of Austrian rye flour sent to her monthly um, with a little happy birthday card. Because it circumvents customs in a specific way. And luckily, if this is not enough, there is an eight-part series podcast that started today (laughs) called Modernist Breadcrumbs on Heritage Radio Network. But Nathan, you never asked me what kind of bread I was. What kind of bread are you? I've been thinking about this this whole time. I think I am ciabatta because I was born in the early 80s, but I have an old soul. (laughs) but i just uh, wanted to thank everyone
3: here and and when we make a sandwich out of you some of the mayo drips out the big holes oh yeah
2: <laughs> <laughs> that will be in my memoirs <laughs> but i wanted to thank everyone here uh um, mofad heritage radio for you know putting together this fantastic podcast uh, my heritage i mean my modernist breadcrumbs team connor and jordan uh we also have Thomas Hughes and Gretchen Lowe's who did the soundtrack for the podcast as well and of course Nathan Mirvold and his whole modernist cuisine team for writing such a wonderful wonderful tome thank you so well, much thank
1: you